This podcast is sponsored by Green Skies Analytics, where they do everything tech-related, but only for internal audit. Although compliance and risk management, y'all are cool too, so feel free to check it out also. To find out more, please visit greenskiesanalytics.com, but it's more likely that you're just going to Google it. So to find out more, please Google Green Skies Analytics. Today, we have Larry Harrington on the show. He retired as the chief audit executive at Raytheon a few years ago, and he's also the former global chairman of the IIA. And if ever there were a motivational speaker within the internal audit profession, it would probably be Larry. So I know this one's long. It's long for a reason. I'll tee up some of the topics that we're going to talk about, but I would suggest everyone, if it takes you a month to listen to it, listen to this one all the way through. Um, some of the things that we do talk about are why your refrigerator and your HVAC system security might cost you your job, which is a fantastic story. Uh, how to get the person on the plane that wants to talk to you while you want to take a nap, how to get them to not talk to you, how to do a culture audit on every audit. And when I say how to, I mean, I ask Larry, tell what are the specific questions that we should ask? And so he does that. And so um, when I said it might, if it takes you a month, I mean, I take notes. It's, it's very good, actionable advice. Uh, and then lastly, um, Larry gives advice for all chief audit executives. I phrase it in, in, or the question I ask is for what advice would you give to new chief audit executives? But after hearing the answer, really it's applicable to everyone that's a chief audit executive or, or leader within the uh, profession. And if you're not there, then it gives insight into what that's actually like, which is very interesting. All right, here we go. What would be your approach to cyber, depending on maybe even the size of the uh, internal audit department and the, the, the competencies they have within cyber? Like, how can we actually do it? So, you know, one of the things that, that I've always held as my three key principles for internal auditors is it's critical you do the right audits at the right time. That means not the right audits at the wrong time or the wrong audits. We need to be doing the right audits at the right time. Number two, we need to make sure on every audit we do, we're providing insight, foresight, and leading practices. And number three, that we're helping our organization achieve its goals and objectives. And if you step back and you think about cyber for a moment, cyber is identified as one of the top risks faced by for-profit, not-for-profit, government organizations, et cetera. And even the IIA's annual pulse of the profession for several years, the latest one being 2020, CAEs identified cyber as one of the highest risks facing their organization, but something they weren't doing enough on. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't follow those three principles, people begin to ask, so what's the value of internal audit? If they're not doing the right things, do I have the right audit function? If they're not providing the right advice, do I have the right audit function? And finally, do I have the right chief audit executive? Mm -hmm. So it's really important when you think about cyber today, to, to understand it's happening everywhere. And if you're not auditing cyber, if you're not, as, as an example, let me, the, one of the people at Raytheon that I became very close to was our chief information security officer, the head of cyber, whoever it is. So whether you're a one person audit function or you're a 50 person or a hundred, make sure you get to know who the chief security officer is. Work with him or her, understand what they see as challenges for the industry, for the company. You can ask them questions about how do they think we're doing with third parties as an example, because you're only as strong as your weakest link. But the CI, the CISO, the Chief Information Security Officer is in a battle every day for cyber. And they don't have a lot of allies in the company because everybody looks at them and says, gee, Trent, you just want to spend more money. You just want to do more and more. And yet they don't understand that today's cyber criminals are using today's technology to crack into systems written 10, 12, 15 years ago, long before cyber was the issue that it is today. In fact, anybody using Oracle or SAP is under daily attack. And that's almost everybody because over 90% of the global revenue across the world is through those systems. And so one of the things that we can do by getting to know the the head of cyber, is we can start to understand from their perspective, where are the challenges? Where are the hurdles? Where are the gaps within the company? We can be sharing with them the white papers we see from the IA or Ernst & Young or PwC or the Gartner Group, and we can be talking about third parties. Well, what that does 
is it helps us understand where their gaps are. It allows us to help advocate to both management and the audit committee on where those gaps are. And why is it that they continually want new tools? Because these cyber criminals are so well-funded and they're coming up with new ways. In fact, I tell people that what the cyber criminals have learned from the Institute of Internal Auditors is this thing called progress through sharing. And believe it or not, they really have their own best practice efforts to share things. And so when you, when you start to, to understand this from the cyber perspective, the best way is from your security officer. Now, it gives you a chance to now start to articulate, to advocate what we need to do. But it also helps you start to think, where are the issues that I need to think as an internal auditor? So I'll give you a couple of examples. Oracle and SAP identify themselves and they use third parties to help them identify weaknesses in their security. And they put out patches on a monthly and a quarterly basis. Here's the problem. When they put the patch out publicly, they tell you what the purpose of the patch is, what it's gonna fix, et cetera. The cyber criminals are watching that exact same traffic. And therefore they know that, okay, there's a problem I can identify. And there's been evidence today that within 72 hours of a patch being released, long before any company could implement the patch, they've already used that information to break into companies. And a study about a year ago, two out of every three U.S. companies acknowledged they've been breached. Yeah. Now, the one out of three that didn't, a lot of people kind of suspect they probably were and they either didn't know it or didn't want to acknowledge it. Yeah, that's what so, I was thinking when you read when you said that stat. That's what I was thinking. So when you pick up the Wall Street Journal or any magazine today, you see we have breach after breach after breach. So someone's going to say, where the hell is in her audit? Why aren't they helping stop some of these? And when you talk to go back to the eyes, pulse of the profession, the CEOs don't feel comfortable. So the first thing is you got to get comfortable. So to me, what you do is you have those conversations with the chief security officer, the cyber team. You talk to some subject matter experts. Cyber is such a technical issue that even if you were, if you worked in the cyber division of PwC three months ago and you left that to come to work for your company, so much happens within that three months, you, you lose it. So you've got to, as a, as a one person shop or a 50 person shop, you've got to think about who are the subject matter experts that I can bring in to help me think through some things. Now there's some other things that you need to be thinking about. Every single point of entry and exit to the internet is a vulnerability. Today, we have refrigerators that connect to the internet. So you may have a refrigerator in your cafeteria that is communicating with the internet. And so one of the things internal auditors need to do working with their company is identify every single point of entry and exit, and then look at the controls around that. You know, I'll give you a real life example. There was a retailer a few years back and to audit, in order to achieve their goals and objectives with less energy and smaller carbon footprint, et cetera, their, their facilities folks wanted to implement a new HVAC system connected to the internet that would allow them to monitor and oversee and really cut down the cost of heating and cooling. They submitted the capital appropriation request to get approved by the finance folks with an ROI that was acceptable. Nobody, nobody in facilities, nobody in finance thought about Gee, I wonder if we should talk to the IT folks about the cyber implications. And so nobody ever did. The system got implemented and the cyber criminals got into that retailer through that HVAC system. Now, lots of people lost their jobs, including the head of internal audit, because nobody thought it through. So that's why it's so important to understand we need to look at all the points of entry and exit because that's how they can get in. It's not just that they're going to use a phishing example. There's, you know, we've got to really think about this. These guys are pretty, these people are pretty sophisticated today. Now, taking that one step further, shortly after that happened, it happened at another retailer, different way they got in, but they didn't fire their head of internal audit. Why? Because that head of internal audit had been pounding the table for months, talking about what they saw as the shortfalls in security. And so as a chief audit executive, you need to be reading these white papers that are being put out as to how cyber is happening. You need to be reading the stories about when, when, when a cyber breach happens, you know, three months later when they're kind of um, reverse engineering how it happened, you need to be able to understand that. And then you need to be having conversations with the audit committee. 
not just, oh, we're going to do a cyber audit next quarter, but using your quarterly meetings or your in-between meetings with the chairman of the audit committee to make sure that they're seeing these white papers. Now, the nice thing about the white papers, they're on ERM, they're on cyber, they're on all the key risks. So as an internal auditor, I sometimes when I talk to particularly folks working in smaller shops, Trent, they'll say to me, but I don't have that expertise or management. I don't have the brand that I can say that to management. You know, if you go in with a PwC white paper, an ENY white paper, a Gartner white paper, and the three of them are saying the same things, you use them to make your point. You don't have to be the smartest guy in the room. You just need to be able to bring those white papers to the table and, and ask management. So if these are the key weaknesses in each of these papers, how are we addressing those? And if we're not addressing those, why wouldn't we take some of the recommendations from those papers? So as a chief audit executive, when I was the chairman of the global board for the IA, each global chairman has to come up with a theme each year. And my theme was invest in yourself. And I came up with that because study after study shows the average internal auditor gets 80 hours of training a year. That's just not enough. When you think, just think of the top 10 risks that any organization faces. If you're auditing the right things at the right time, those are the 10 things you're going to do first. Well, how are you going to become an expert in each of those? You're going to have to invest your time in reading white papers, studying what others are doing, building a network so you can work with your peers to see what they learned, et cetera. And too often, internal auditors aren't making that investment. And it's tougher if you're a one or two or three person staff. But even with three people on your staff, what if you divide the work by three? So instead of everybody focusing on, I got to do audit after audit after audit, what if part of every week you had one risk, I had one risk, and Susan had one risk, and our job was to, on our own time, investigate that risk and share the knowledge among the three of us. There's ways to leverage it. Um, So another thing when it comes to cyber, um, people have to understand that privacy is very closely related. Why? So in Europe, they have one privacy rule for the EU. So as tough as it is, and it really is tough, and to do the privacy work correctly takes a big investment. We could do an entire hour just on privacy. But the point is, it's one rule for all of the EU. And the penalties that they've issued for, for breaches is in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And why? Because if someone comes in through cyber, they're worried not so much that they got your intellectual capacity or your intellectual information. They're worried they got transpersonal information. And so the privacy rules are written. And so there are very strict rules as to uh, when you have a breach, how, how soon you have to disclose it and what you need to do and the penalties. In the United States, it's more complicated because we don't have one rule for all 50 states. So California has theirs and New York has theirs and everybody's going differently. So from a privacy standpoint, New York and California are two of the toughest. So understanding what they say about privacy and the fines associated with that relative to cyber criminals coming in is something that you can't lose sight of because the penalties there are huge. Now, we all know that the cyber criminals today aren't just interested in in your PII. In many cases, they're interested in the intellectual capacities of the company. So so we we can't forget about the privacy piece. The other thing we need to remember is the SEC has cyber high on their radar risk. The PCAOB has it high on their radar risk. There are legislators that are suggesting that we need a SOX-like approach to cyber. Now, can you imagine if we had to do, what what would the cost be of a SOX-like approach to cyber? So as internal auditors, we we can't hide our head in the sand and say, well, you know, we're just not that knowledgeable on cyber. We need to understand it's happening every place, whether a for-profit, not-profit, or we're a government organization. We know about ransomware. We know about all of these types. So we've got to sit down there and working closely with the chief security officer and, and management, identifying where are the highest vulnerabilities within our organization. Yeah. And then looking at how do we close those gaps? And what I've, what I've tried to tell people over time is that when you reverse engineer how some of these happened. What you realize is the IT general controls, which have been rock solid for years, are just no longer effective at keeping these folks out. That means, as I've been advocating to the internal audit profession and to ISACA, 
we have to change our entire approach. And if you pick up stuff often from ISAC or the IA, it's very high level. And these cyber criminals, they're not at the high level. They're way deep down into the organization or how they get into the organization. And so as a profession, we need to fess up and say, what let's let's the IA and ISACA work together as an example. Let's take five, 10, 15, 20 of these big cyber events and let's break them down and help people understand how did the, how did they actually happen? We're not going to give out names or companies or details, but let them understand where did the control, what controls were lacking that allowed the cyber criminals to come in and take the information that they took. And, and so when you start to think about it, I, I, I remind internal auditors that a problem not communicated is a problem assumed. Mm -hmm. If I'm not championing to the audit committee, the concerns the organization should be thinking about with cyber, if I'm not advocating what are the things I need to do from an internal audit perspective or the resources or the budget or whatever, if I'm not communicating that problem, then when the problem really hits, they're going to say, Trent, you never told us that we need to get a new chief audit executive. Right. So as a chief audit executive, you've got to have the courage to have the conversations. And, and you get that courage, you get that experience by talking to the chief information security officer, by talking to some of the cyber experts at your external audit firm that's auditing your books, by going to some of the other experts in the cyber field and asking to talk to them. Um, you know, when you, when you send internal auditors to conferences, it's often sponsored by internal auditors. And I often would send my folks to, for instance, it, when um, I worked many years ago at a company that was very heavily into supply chain, I sent some of my auditors to a supply chain seminar where there were 3,000 supply chain experts and two internal auditors. <laughs> and But those two internal auditors, they started to identify, they knew what systems we needed to put in and what we were going to do. They went around and found who already did that what mistakes they made, if they were going to do it again, how would they do it again? They were able to bring back information, connection, build networks with people within the company. And so when you start to think about cyber, we need to go to Black Hat and some of the other programs where they're dedicated and the people there are experts in cyber. And if you go there as an internal auditor, the, the opportunity for you to learn and bring information back is invaluable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I like that a lot. I, I know I've gone to conferences. It was a data science conference. I was the only auditor there, um, but I got to learn things about machine learning that I didn't really know because there's not a ton of use cases for internal audit, but we need to know about machine learning and the risks associated to it so that we can audit it. And I was really surprised to hear that, you know, like in machine, in machine learning, you build the model you put it in production and then you have to, you have to tweak it as it goes, you know, like every week or whatever, whatever uh, is needed that way. And that seems really obvious to me that you would have to go back and, and retest it uh, periodically. And the amount of people that would like the amount of times that somebody got up on the stage and they were like, yeah, don't forget, you got to go back and like, and retest this thing. Like, it just seemed like a, a lot of people were just throwing it out in production and then not really picking it back up. And so I would have just assumed that process is probably pretty strong within a machine learning um, process, but apparently it wasn't. So all that to say, this was, I had to be the only auditor there, um, but still had a lot of really good takeaways. And I know everybody's not going to be into data science and machine learning, but uh, I think it does speak to what you're, you're talking about. But Trent, um, this great example you gave. Oh, about 15 years ago, training programs used to say, you know, people loved the session, gave us a 10 out of 10. They go back to the office and they've missed three days worth of work, five days worth of work. Within five days of trying to catch up to everything they missed, they've totally forgot about the entire. Yep. So they said, you know what we're going to do? On the last day, we'll have each person write a letter to themselves and we'll take the letter and mail it to them in a month just to remind them. I think what you've just described is perfect. The people that are busy making, working that software, working the tools, once they put it out, they're off to the next project yep. and the next project and the next project. And there's nobody sitting back saying we need to kind of retweak it. And it's, it's kind of like if you think today, um, third party, third party risk. So many organizations, particularly manufacturing organizations, but not just manufacturing, you know, this almost every industry relies very heavily on third parties. And in some industries, like in, 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 the, in the aerospace and defense industry, there are rules that you have to hire 
a company, you have to have suppliers that are minority owned, small business, disadvantaged business, et cetera. So, you know, a, a, let's say a $50 billion company may have lots of small companies under $100 million providing key parts to them. Now, do they have the resources that you have from a cyber perspective, from a software perspective? No, but they make you just as vulnerable. So as internal auditors, while you're thinking about every point of entry and exit, don't forget every one of your third parties. And as an internal auditor, I try to tell folks, don't get overwhelmed, right? Because first of all, management has the responsibility over third parties. Management owns all the controls. So part of what you have to do is know the right questions to ask. So one question could be, okay, management, have you identified every point of entry or exit from the internet? Which is was a common um, first step, I think, with, with building out a yeah. program. If you don't know, if you don't know that you have it, then you you don't have it. Right. And so what you just have to know initially is how to ask the right questions. So a question could be on those third parties that we use in the company, what controls do we have have we put in place to test to make sure that they're as strong as we are? And when you start to ask the right questions, and, and to me, you know, one of the things that internal auditors have to transition from is a once a year audit plan mm-hmm. to a virtual audit plan, because risks change on a regular basis. And to me, you should be doing your risk assessment throughout the year, not just once at, once a time. Spending some time on these key things is really important to be able to ask the right questions. You don't have to know how does the company protect against third parties. You don't have to know how does the company do this but you have to ask the question. And then if the company doesn't have the right roles, now there's a whole different path you walk yourself down. Do you have like a go-to question that you seem to use a lot when you're, when you're doing uh, walkthroughs or trying to understand a, a risk that is not necessarily one that you are an expert in? So yeah, that's a great question, Trent. So one of the things, let's say I'm doing an audit in a first time audit and I'm not that familiar with it. Mm-hmm. I do some research let's just pick something very simple like treasury. All right. I'm not a, I, I haven't treasury experience. I got to do a treasury audit. And, and so what am I going to look at? So the first thing I do is I do some benchmarking. What are the key risks within treasury functions? Once I know the key risks, then I start to look at, so when there've been problems in treasury functions, where are the problems been? So you start to research some of that. So now that helps you formulate the questions. And so when you sit there and my first question might be to you is, Trent is the treasurer of the organization. What, do you, what have you defined as the top seven critical risks within treasury? Now I'm gonna be comparing those to my list and seeing if they're the same ones. If they're the same ones, we now move to the, so talk about how do you control those? You know, how do you prevent, detect and monitor controls around those? Or if you have four and then I had four that you didn't have, now I wanna ask you about those four. Mm-hmm. And maybe on two of those, you've now convinced me that they're not applicable to us for var- various good reasons. But in two cases, they just hadn't thought about those. Now that gets you down a different path, getting them to think about it. But part of the issue that I try to help auditors understand is we don't own controls. The function owns the controls. But we're supposed to be an expert in controls. But how do you be an expert in controls across everything? Yeah. It starts with what's the key risk? Because... You know, a very, very good friend of mine, Joel Kramer, who used to, who taught, taught internal auditors for 40 years. He used to ask a question and he'd say to the group, and he had 30 people in, in a session, how many of you folks have ever recommended Im- improving internal controls? And everybody would raise their hand. He'd say, okay, how many of you have ever identified where you're over-controlled and recommended management take some of those controls away? And nobody raises their hand. He said, wait a minute. What made you think that your company's got unlimited money on internal controls? They don't. And so as an auditor, part of our job is helping management understand, are we spending our money wisely? Are we controlling the right things at the right level? Are we trying to control everything? Are we trying to over control certain things? And as an internal auditor, we need to develop the courage to be able to have that conversation and say, Trent, you actually manage that control with four different controls. Do you really need four different controls? And in fact, you know, one of the things, I know it's a little off topic, but one of the things that we always did at Raytheon is we would identify manual controls versus automated controls. Mm -hmm. Because automated controls generally, if they're tested properly, and we talked about that a few minutes ago, you don't have to worry about that 
You don't have to worry about Bob having a bad day today and missed a bunch of things or Sarah having a bad day. But all your manual controls rely on manual people. And so when you start to do flow charts, if you identify where the manual controls are, now manual controls mean people. People means cost, vacation costs, sick costs, all those kinds of things. When you automate it, it's seven by 24, no vacation, no holiday, no quit, no not anything. So you also, by, by looking at the controls in a different way than auditors often do, you can help the company have a conversation around what's the value of automating the controls versus doing manual controls. And, you know, again, a little bit off topic, but to the point to some degree, at Raytheon, two of our organizations, supply chain and um, shared services, and decided a year or so before I retired that they were going to look at putting bots in to take out all the manual processes people had. And when they went out to bid, the bids all came back saying, in addition to you hiring us and working together, you have to commit to having two other groups with you. You have to have HR on board because this is going to revolutionize the workplace and there's going to be lots of pushback and changes and HR implications. So you need to have them involved. And then they said, you have to have internal audit involved. Why? Because Mary and Jack and Bob can only do 100 transactions an hour. There's a limit to how many mistakes they can make. But when we put the bot in and they can do 10,000 an hour, if that's not programmed properly, if we don't have the right controls in place, if audit hasn't signed off on that, you could be in for big trouble. And so we actually worked hand in glove on those two projects. And so, again, it gets back to if you can build a brand, you don't have to be the smartest guy in the world, smartest woman in the world, smartest person. But if you can use the white papers, if you can use your network of connections, I mean, take yourself, Trent. I don't know how many people you've interviewed over time, but there's probably, if someone called you and said, Trent, I'm having a question, you'd probably give them three different people they could talk to, right? Because you become invaluable. Part of your brand is the relationships you have with other people. And as internal auditors, we have to understand we don't need to know everything but we need to know where to go to get whatever we need. And sometimes it's a person. Sometimes it's a, it's a peer. Sometimes it's someone else in the company. Sometimes it's the white papers, but that's why you have to invest in yourself. You have to put the hours in up front in order to make sure you can ask the right questions. You hit on um, brand a couple of times. I know that's something that did uh, a topic of interest to you. Can you talk about that in the context of the individual auditor and then as well as the internal de- internal audit department? 20 years ago, I was the chief audit executive hired to turn around an audit function at a large insurance company. And I wanted to put a mission statement together. And I brought a professional in and we had 150 in the department and he worked with all 150 people. We came up with a fairly long paragraph that described our mission. And I was really pleased and excited because it involved everybody in the organization. And I was showing it to a friend of mine who just started laughing. And I said, what do you mean? What are you laughing about? He says, he says, Larry, I'll bet you the best steak dinner. You pick the, any place in the United States and I'll even fly you there. Let me come into your organization in a month and let me walk around and let me just pick 10 people at random and see if they can tell me what your vision is, what your mission is. I lost, he won. Yeah. So when I got to Raytheon, I learned that lesson and we created one that was very simple. Create positive change with a sense of urgency. Positive change, sense of urgency. And we spent constantly talking about what does positive change mean? It isn't just doing audits. Mm-hmm. What is positive? And what does sense of urgency mean? And so when I, when I would start to work with people, I'd help them understand what do we want to be known for? So now we'll step back for a second to if Trent was working for me. Trent, what is your brand? What do you mean what's my brand? Well, what's Coke stand for? What's Pepsi stand for? What's you know, you could, but what about you, Trent? Do when people describe you, do they use words like passionate, enthusiastic, bright, inquisitive? What are the words they use to describe you? And so one of the things I used to do exercises with groups of folks, and I'd say to all of them, I want you on your own to identify three people who you think are leaders. Mm-hmm. I don't care who they are. I want you to go and interview those leaders. I want you to explain to them why you selected them. So what is it that was so good about them? And then I want you to interview, how did they get good in those things? And people would come back and report. We often had groups of 10. And you'd see a priest, a nun, a father, a mother, a school teacher, a friend, an executive. I mean, there was no, 
you couldn't correlate um, like everybody came from the same. No, they were little league coach. They were all over. But when you when each person described the attributes of that leader, their ability to listen, their ability to emphasize, to empathize, their ability to coach, to mentor, uh, stay cool in hot situations, always look at the positive versus the negative. As they started to go through, two things happened. One, they started to come up with a list of real good assets that they'd want to be known for. And they'd say, isn't it interesting that what made that police officer successful was the same thing that made the nun successful, mm -hmm. which is the same that made the lead, the, the executive that I, you know, and so people as they, as they would come together to share their notes. And so it starts with understanding who do you want to be when you grow up? What is it that you want to be known for? Do you want to be known? You know, there are some people when you walk up to them and say, Hey Trent, how you doing? Oh my God, what a terrible week. And they're just very negative people. And there are other people, no matter what happens, they're just so positive. And so, so to me, personal brand is so important because whether you know it or not, you have a brand and your brand may be that you just appear to be negative or you never speak up or you appear to be introverted. Uh -huh. People, before you even open your mouth, people are already assessing who you are. So I try to help people understand that at the youngest of age, you need to think about brand and what do you want to be known for? What are those attributes? And you learn some of those from looking at successful people that you admire, but also looking at people you don't admire. Because but the ones you don't admire, is, I don't want to have that quality. Yeah. But, but one of the things, once you start to do an inventory of what I want to be known for, you, know, you then have to do an assessment. And so survey 10 or 20 people that know you. Ask them to describe you using one word, just one word. You get those 20 words back. Do any of them match the ones you thought were important? If they don't, then you already have a disconnect between what you want for a brand and what you have for a brand. Yeah. And it helps you start to identify what are the things you need to do. You need to, I, I, I coach people by having an elevator speech. What happens if you're in the elevator, the door opens and the CEO or a vice president or some big, big influential person steps in? What do you do? Oh, it's really hot out today, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it's great. Do you take the two minutes between the ninth floor and the second floor to introduce yourself, to talk about what you do? You know, I, I tell people the story that sometimes when I'm on an airplane and I've flown a lot in my life, every once in a while I get on an airplane, I just want to take a nap and I'm sitting next to someone who just wants to talk. Mm -hmm. And so what I'll do to them is I'll say, so what do you do? And Trent will tell me what he does. And then Trent being Trent will say, so what do you do, Larry? And I say, I'm an internal auditor. And the conversation stops right there <laughs> and I get to take my nap. Okay. But because most people perceive internal auditors as negative. They don't see us as doing the right things at the right time, providing insight, foresight, leading practices, helping the organization achieve its goals and objectives. So when I'm not interested in taking the nap, I talk to them with as much enthusiasm I can find without using the word internal audit at the beginning, only at the end. Yeah. And they'll often say, at the end, I wish our internal audit department was like that. Yeah. But it, it all because it's it's the it's the perception, it's your brand, it's it's the how do you communicate with enthusiasm what it is you do? And you know, I'll tell you one story. Um, I had a situation. I got a call from one of our vice presidents one day, and she said, "Larry," she said, um, "As you know, your folks had just finished an audit of area A," and I said, "Yes," and I understand it wasn't very good. And she said, yes. And she said, I just want you to know that when you were doing your planning process for the year, the, the director in that area had, had argued with us that, that, was, that she saw that as a weakness in our area and she was going to audit it. Mm -hmm. We were convinced there was no problems there and said, it's below the line. We're not going to focus on it. Do the audit if you want, but it's a waste of time. Well, Larry, it turns out she was right and we were wrong. And these are significant things. So here's my question, Larry. I have two questions. One is, you have a vision to create positive change with a sense of urgency. Do you really believe that? Or is that just smoke? Yeah. And the reason why I ask you that, Larry, is you and I both know who my boss is. And I'll spend the next three months just getting my butt kicked from one end of the building to the other. And that'll take away the time I have to fix this. Mm -hmm. So if you really believe in your mission, why don't we take this audit and suspend it? I know what I need to get fixed. Give me 60 days to get it all fixed. Finish the audit on day 61 or 65 and let the chips fly as they may. 
but I can commit to you that we'll get it flawless by then. I said, let me think about it. I called the chairman of the audit committee. We had a great relationship and I explained it all to him. And he said, Larry, you and I both know the CEO quite well. And we know that she'll be kicked from one end of the building to the other for the next two months. <laughs> he said, so if you trust her that she's gonna get it done and you really do believe in creating positive change, then why are we even having this conversation? And my answer was out of respect for you because I respect your input. Well, we went back in 45 days, they had the whole area cleaned up. We were able to issue a report that talked about, because you know we didn't just issue a clean report saying everything's wonderful, but we talked about the progress that, that what, where they took it from point A to point B. We gave them credit for doing the work. I didn't need two bonus points from the CEO because I made them look bad because I found a problem area. It was about positive change. And the way I was compensated, did I create positive change with a sense of urgency? So I tell people all the time, brand is important. It can't just be blowing smoke. You have to believe it. And so I can't tell you how many times people would come to me and say, Larry, we think we may have a problem. Do you guys, do you think you could take a look at it? Because they believed we were all about creating positive change. And so from a chief audit executive standpoint, you got to think about what's your personal brand and what's the brand for your department. And then when you go to recruit, you want to recruit people that are going to embrace that brand, not resist that brand. And so one of the things that I talked about whenever I would interview people is how much have you invested in yourself in the last year or two? How much are you willing to invest going forward? If you're not the kind of person who's going to invest in yourself, then I don't want you in my organization because part of my culture is people who are willing to invest in themselves. And I want to, you know, I would have a profile. You know, it's, it's funny when you start to, over, over a career, you start to look at who are the most successful people, kind of going back to my exercise. And you find out that, you know, I had music majors, I had finance majors, I had all different kinds of majors, but what is it made them so successful? It was those in, the innate ability to look at something from a different perspective, to ask great questions. You know, Tony Robbins, some of you and I have talked about before, Tony talks about, it's not the first question that's that important. It's the follow-up question that's so important. And when you're going back to cyber, when you start to ask the questions, you've got to be ready to ask the follow-up questions and the follow-up to the follow-up questions because those are the ability to be able to ask good questions. You know, so many internal auditors, Trent, are, are introverts. Mm -hmm. So we don't build the networks we need to build, right? As I said earlier, just a few minutes ago, those that listen to your podcasts know you're a guy that knows lots of influential people. And so if they have the courage, which they often don't, to get out of the introvert and call you and say, hey, listen, you don't know me, but I listen to one of your podcasts and I've got, a, I got an issue. Who do you think might be able to help me? If we could only learn to build our networks. And yet what we do is we use our networks when we need them. Mm -hmm. You build a network when you don't need it. Yeah. Like when you need money, Banks don't want to loan it to you. Yeah. They only want to loan it to you when you when you don't need it. So you've got to build up a savings account. Well, think of networks the same way. We need to invest as chief audit executives and as auditors. We need to invest in building our relationships as far and as wide as we can, because the wider and the deeper it is, the more people, the higher the chance someone's going to know the answer to the question that we don't know the answer to. And, and, and you mentioned... Um like someone reaching out to me to, if they had a question, I could introduce them to somebody. So I'll, I'll let everyone know. I love introducing people uh, to each other that don't know each other. Like it, it makes my brain happy to write that email and try to find like a few things about each person that I think might, you know, they might find interesting or whatever, and then do the introduction. So if there is anyone that if there's someone that is on the show that you want to meet or something like this is the, uh, the public announcement, just shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Uh, I'd be glad to help. Uh, Larry, you talked about recruiting uh, a second ago, and that's a topic I wanted to get your opinion on. Um, I, so after we had our initial conversation, I sent a message to the person that introduced um, us together. And I said, yep. if, if Larry comes out of retirement, I'm going to go work for Larry. Uh, <laughs> so, so you have this like natural positivity about yourself that, that is attractive. And so I could see how for someone like yourself, it is maybe not easier, but it, maybe it comes more natural the ability to retain talent. And right now we're talking about the great resignation that's going on yep. and people are, are leaving all over the place or leaving one institution so they can go or one organization so they can work remote for another one. 
And so what, what are, how can we retain better talent and how, or how can we retain the talent that we have while also attracting the best talent? Well, that's a great question, Trent. And, and let me just remind everybody that it's about creating positive change with a sense of urgency. Now, not everybody I recruited into an internal audit wanted to spend the rest of their life working in internal audit. They wanted to work in finance or IT or supply chain, right? So one of the things I learned early on in my career is if I'm going to build a brand within the company I worked for, one of the brands that I want to build is my ability to attract the kinds of people they all want to hire, right? And most people, not all, but most people don't want to be a career internal auditor. They want to use internal audit to get from point A to point B. Now, so you need to have a, a variety of people in internal audit, some who want to stay within internal audit for a long time. And some of those, it's about helping them as well. Because, you know, in any audit organization, there's only so many slots. I can't tell you how many directors or vice presidents or senior managers are working at many other companies that started working with me at one point. And I, I did a speech one time at, at, a, at, at a GAM conference and I had four or five chief audit executives all come up to me because they had worked for me and they wanted me to know that they were where they are because of their experience with me. And then the five of them all started to talk and kind of share stories. So again, it's not about how do I attract the right people that are gonna make me good. It's how do I attract people that are gonna help the organization succeed. And in some cases, some of those folks, well, we're just not gonna have enough room in the company for, but they're great people. So let me help find them a job someplace else. Let me be a reference. Let me help connect them to other people. Now, what happens is you build your network. You build your network. And so you have to think about this long-term, but it starts with understanding what, what kind of people do you need in the organization? Introverts or extroverts? Do you need, you know, if you think of Myers-Briggs, you know, you could, you could do the Myers-Briggs test and put everybody in the four corners of the room. Right. Well, most internal auditors, 80% are in the same corner. Yeah. So when I was at an insurance company, head of internal audit, and I'm going through this, this major change, I brought two recruiters in who'd, who'd hired for years. And I said to them, I want to hire two nurses. <laughs> and they looked at me like, what? what? Yeah. I said, we provide health care. And we provide healthcare auditing. My auditors don't understand what's really going on in healthcare. I want a couple of nurses with MBAs, but I don't just want nurses. Here's the kind of personality I'm looking for. They need to be inquisitive. They need to be, you know, and you walk through the care. Both of those nurses were with me less than two years before they moved into the business. The business grabbed them because they were so valuable, right? So sometimes we try to hire people in our own like and image. We need to have a diversity of talent today. And so we need to have people with the right skills, the right willingness to learn, the right investment, the right uh, attitude. And then we need to provide what it is that they need. So for instance, Trent, if he's the kind of person who is inquisitive and wants challenges, I can't put him on the same audit three times in a row. I got to give him different things all the time. And so as a chief audit executive, you then have to, when you get these assets working for you, you've got to figure out a way, how do I push them? How do I give them push assignments, challenge assignments? How do I continue to expand the things that are important to them? How do I coach and mentor them to get the exposure? And over my career, I've been very fortunate at being able to attract those kinds of folks and our businesses then hire those folks out. And then what, what happens is at Raytheon, we hired people out of HR to join internal audit out of legal to join internal audit, out of supply chain. Because what those folks start to realize is, wow, what other department in the company gets to see every operation? Who gets to present to senior management? What are the things that they learn? And so they would come to internal audit and rotate for a year or two and go back. People say, well, what do they know about internal auditing? I could teach them internal auditing, yeah. it's, but, but I knew the business skills I was looking for. I wanted people that could look at things differently. I wanted people who could be inquisitive. I wanted people who could ask good questions who could ask the good follow-up questions. I wanted people who could relate to other people. You know, just think about it, Trent. If I'm in interviewing you for, um, you're the payroll person. It's a very simple example. Um, how often are they audited? How often do they interview by an auditor? 
you know, the first thing you learn, the first thing I learn is if I can put you at ease, if I can make you comfortable talking to me, yeah. then it's going to be a very different interview <laughs> than if you're petrified as to what to say or how to say things to me. And so though you look for those kinds of people and then you provide an environment, an environment where they're going to be continually challenged. They're going to be, they're going to continue to learn and, and you'll learn as well. And I'll give you another example. We had an audit going over in the UK at one point, a couple of years ago, and the team came to me, including the in charge saying um, the in charge had a, Oh, maybe it was a, a, a nine month old child. And so she was going to manage the job from Boston. The team was going to go to the UK and she said, I'll just, I'll get up at like three in the morning so I can be, I can work the same hours as the team, et cetera. And my first reaction was, I don't know how that's going to work. They, the, the team needs you as the in-charge on site. You need to be able to interact with them. There's real-time questions. You need to build relationships with the customer, et cetera. And as I was driving home that night, I thought, what a, what a fool am I? She's one of my top talented people. And it's a great team. What's the worst that can happen? We try and it's not as successful. So the next morning I called her into my office and I said, I want to talk to you about yesterday's meeting. She said, well, I want to talk to you first. So I went home and talked to my husband last night. And he said, you promised me and you promised Larry that Ethan would not impact your career at all. And here's the first chance for you to do an international audit and you're backing away from it. That's wrong. So it's up to me. I will take care of Ethan for the two weeks you're gone. It'll be my responsibility to step up. She said, so we're all set. We're ready to go. And I said to her, well, so let me tell you what I was going to tell you. <laughs> right. I'm a fool and we need to try new things. And you've shown me over the years that we can try new things. So if you and the team are willing to commit to do it, because at the end of the day, it's all about achievement and results, not about process. Mm -hmm. And so I've told that story many times because I learned because every one of us can fall in a trap. Your employees are looking at you all the time. So while you're talking about innovation and creativity and trying to do and challenge people, they're looking to see if you walk the talk. And not always do we walk the talk, but to be able to go back the next day and say, you know, I was wrong. You were right. Let's try it. So as a leader, they're always looking to you. Are you pushing them for their best interest? Are you helping them succeed? And when they help, when they see you help someone who actually leaves the company and gets a promotion someplace else and they stay, keep in touch, they say, wow, you really do care about people. And so at the end of the day, when you ask people why they leave companies, it's generally not for more money. That comes often as, a, as an yeah, after effect. Right. It's because they didn't like the boss. Mm -hmm. They didn't like the environment. So as a chief audit executive, you you got to create an environment where you attract the kinds of people that will prosper in the culture that you're creating. And then you need to foster that culture constantly. And then if part of that culture is to move people into the business, you've got to always be helping people with an opportunity to add value. And then the next step is then people want to come and work in internal audit. Before you know it, you start being known as the, the talent pool for the organization. Nice. And, and that's what's so important. And if you do that today, you're still going to lose some folks because of, as you said, as we come out of the pandemic and things change. But even when you lose a good person to another company, it gives you an opportunity to replace them with a different skill. Because you see, every time someone leaves, you need to take an inventory and say, what skill am I lacking now? What skill do I need to go and fill in here? Do I, do I buy that skill or do I rent that skill with co-sourcing? And, in, and the diversity today, and, and I tell you, hiring nurses and hiring people out of HR and out of supply chain and in all organizations really helped us think about things differently. Because you see, engineers often think about things a certain way, and particularly engineers from a certain school, because that's what they were all taught the yeah. same way. So when you're looking at a problem, if the same eyes are looking at the same solution, you're only going to come up with one solution. But if you can surround yourself with the diversity, inclusion, uh, diversity of thought, experience. I use a simple example. Men and women think differently, see things differently. I tell people that I could open the refrigerator door, look for the bottle of ketchup and never see it. Say to my wife, we don't have any ketchup. She used to get so mad at me. She used to say, bend down, bend <laughs> down, look scan. And so I get so intimidated, I would hesitate to even ask her if we had any ketchup. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and when I found, when I say there's no ketchup, with one hand, she magically produced the ketchup in front of me yeah. and the other 
slap me in the back of the head. But I could say I, I was really looking every, and I didn't see it. My eyes didn't see it. Men look at things differently. Women look at things differently. People with different disciplines look at things differently. So the more that you can surround yourself with people who are going to think differently, you'll come up with a better solution. You come up with a better analysis of the problem and a better solution. There was something, there's a lot in there and a lot that we've, we've talked about so far. We could probably do another couple hours um, with you, but you mentioned culture a couple different times. And yeah. something I thought was interesting when we were talking earlier was, and I was asking about culture audits because that's a, a, a bit of a hot topic right now. And you're like, oh yeah, we, we've all, we always did that. Every audit we did had a, a piece of culture audit baked into it. And I think that would be really fantastic to share with the listeners. Could you kind sure. of walk through what that, how you guys were able to do like a culture audit on yeah. every audit that you did? So again, remembering that risk is continuous, not a point in time. So if you do one audit across about culture, it's only at that one point in time. So we made the decision, we do it on every single audit and we really covered six different areas. So the first area was we, and so we, we had, pre-printed questions and we would ask people that we were auditing these questions. So the first was on the reporting channels, things like, do you know who your ethics officer is? Who, who the lead HR person is if you wanted to report something? Are you familiar with how you'd report something that you thought was unethical, unusual, whatever? Then we would we move into the code of conduct, the company's code of conduct. Do you, do you know how to access the code of conduct? Does your leadership talk about the code of conduct? And what do they say about the importance of the code of conduct? And then the next series of questions would focus on um, the company culture. What kind of messages do you get from the CEO down? You know, how's the information flowing down throughout all levels of the organization? Do you feel as though the company or the function you work for or the department you work in, do they operate ethically? And do we as a company or does your function or your department do they reward the right behaviors or the wrong behaviors? And then we kind of get into what I'll call the willingness to report. Is there a culture to raise your hand? Mm -hmm. Are you encouraged to report violations if you see something? If you observe something, would you feel comfortable reporting it? Do you believe reporting something would result in retaliation or not? Do you fear retaliation? And then we'd, we'd get into the whole diversity, equity, and inclusion. Do you see people in this organization that look like you? Do you feel there's an opportunity for you in this organization? Does your function or does the company value DE&I? And another one we talk, you know, so often you go to a department meeting and two people do all the talking. Mm -hmm. The rest of people sit there. So in DE&I, one of these is, does, does everybody have a chance to speak? Does someone go around the table and make sure that everybody's voice is heard? And then after I left, because of, the, because of COVID, they've added a new section to this test and it's called uh, the remote work environment. And, and so they asked some questions about how different is the remote work environment from being in the office? For instance, how connected are you to, still to your supervisor, your fellow employees? Um, are there any processes or controls different doing work at home than doing work in the office. So we would, we would ask those, those six categories. There's you know, a bunch of questions in each category. And we, we'd ask them the different people in the organization at all different levels. And what we would then do is we'd share the results, not as part of the audit report, but we'd share the results because they weren't scientific, they weren't meant to be scientific, with local management to give them a feel. And then every six months I'd sit down with the CEO and the audit committee and I'd review collectively what have we seen over the last six months across more functions? Where might we focus more effort, more energy on, et cetera? And so they, the audit committee found it much more helpful than doing one audit a year or one audit every couple of years on culture because on every audit we could understand. Do they understand what the company stands for? Do they understand how to report violations? Are they afraid to report those? What's the culture within diversity and inclusion and management, et cetera? So it really gave us some insight um, into what the culture was within that function we were auditing or that department we were auditing, et cetera. But it allowed us to look across a larger spectrum over a longer period of time and really give some insight. Because, you know, unfortunately, I, I tell this story. I, at the, the insurance company I worked at 20 plus years ago, the CEO said to me one day, he said, you know, Larry, let me just tell you. I got on the corporate plane the other day and they told me, Mr. So-and-so, 
I'm sorry, we have no tuna fish. All we have is roast beef today. He said, fine, no problem. I get off the plane and I said to him, that was the best roast beef sandwich I ever had. Larry, I can't get anything but roast beef on that plane anymore. They think that now that they read my mind, I only want that. He said, I want you to understand as the chief audit executive, I don't want you to read my mind. I need you to inform me. I need you to help me understand what other people are thinking, doing, and acting. Because in my case, Larry, everything gets filtered up to me. And I need you as the chief audit executive to be unfiltered. And so, again, as a chief audit executive, in your conversations with management, your conversations with the audit committee, you need to be unfiltered. And I don't mean unfiltered, you say crazy things. I mean, you know, you still have to be, you have to think about your personal brand. But the point is, they want to hear what they don't want to hear. And if they they don't want to hear what they need to hear, then that's not the organization for you. So, again, part of your personal brand is making sure you've picked the right company to work for. Because if you see ethical issues or you see compliance issues, you know, you look in the Midwest, just last month, one of the largest utility companies in the Midwest paid a $300 million fine and a huge consent decree because they admitted to bribing state officials, right? Now, what kind of, a, so the CEO lost his job and others, you can, you can be sure the board did. So you, you've got to work for an organization that truly believes, and I've been fortunate, the companies I've worked at really wanted to know what they needed to know to be better. And I was, it was always welcome to raise your hand and share information. Now, sometimes it's hard. And sometimes, you know, they push back at you, prove it, prove it, prove it. And that just tells you I haven't provided enough evidence. I haven't provided enough documentation. And so as a chief audit executive, you've got to remember, nobody has to accept anything you say just because you said it. You always have to have the business case. You've got to have the support, the documentation behind helping someone understand why what you're saying is true. And why what you're recommending makes more sense for the organization. It's about persuasive. And the more you can work on your brand, the more they see you as doing the right audits at the right time, adding insight, foresight, and insight, helping the company achieve goals and objectives, the more they're going to want to hear from you as to what you're seeing and hearing. And the more you're right, the more they're going to ask you for more and more opinions. Yeah, I think the la- I mean, the whole episode has been great. Uh, I mean, the specific culture questions that you that you have there that people can literally just pause, write it out and have, you know, basically a, a culture audit, uh, almost a continuous monitoring culture audit right. with them. I mean, just from, from listening to this, um, it's been fantastic. The piece about being the unfiltered connection um, to the CEO. I love th- that perspective also. Um, so we've covered a lot. We've got just a, a few minutes left. Is there anything else that you want to speak to? Well, I, I would just say that, um, to, to those that are new chief audit executives or chief audit executive of a smaller company, don't be afraid to reach out to people like myself and others. We'll spend time coaching or mentoring or helping you answer some questions. Um, I get them all the time. Um, the best thing about our profession is it's known for progress through sharing. And so we share information. Yep. And so as a, as, a, as, a, as a new CE, for instance, it's important before you take the job to understand what are they trying to achieve? What was, what was it that the last person was so successful at and not so successful at? What is it that they want out of the organization? You know, too often I've heard people say, we want a change agent. And they come in to change things. and Oh, that's not what we wanted. Kind of thing. So it's really important as a chief audit executive to make sure that the company you pick really wants what they say they want. And that's what you want to be. And then it's, you know, I, I, I was fortunate. I've always had very good um, audit committee chairs. I would meet with them um, in between each meeting, um, usually either on the phone or in person. Um, and you develop a relationship over time. But remember, they're only in the office four, six, eight times a year. So they rely on your eyes and your ears. So my chairman would say, Larry, let me ask you. My chairman always had a rule. And I, I, I'm not, I'm not saying this for everybody, but it was for me. Larry, I'll share things with you that I'll deny. You can share things with me that you deny. Mm-hmm. We have to be in partnership with each other. You see things and hear things. I need to hear that. And I may see things and hear things, and I need you to validate or invalidate it. And so we would have very candid conversations about culture, about people. He'd say, for instance, they might say, we're thinking of making these changes. What do you think, Larry? What's, what's the pluses? What's, 
And it was always one-on-one, never taking notes, never documenting what I said or didn't say or vice versa. But you want to create that brand, that relationship where they trust your judgment, your insight and your foresight, and that they're able to share some things with you because they want to know how's that going to play out? What's the impact? Or um, what's the downside if we were to do this? Or what's the upside we do that? So it's so important to build a strong relationship with the chairman of the audit committee. And the last thing I would say is you got to help educate them. So sharing with them white papers really is a way to help educate them on leading thinking. And then maybe in some aspects of your company, they're not, your company's not leading in certain ways. Well, it's a hard battle for you. Show them the, the papers and help them ask the management the right questions. It's, it's amazing in my career, I could ask a certain question, nothing happened. The chairman of the audit committee asked the same question and earth moved very quickly after that. So knowing that you, you have a resource in, in the chairman of the audit committee, help them with the kinds of questions they should be asking, the kinds of information they should be looking for, and make sure that they know that you've got courage and wisdom, the courage to speak up and the wisdom to share information. My chairman never thought I was infallible and that my point of view was my point of view, not necessarily the right point of view, but a point of view to be considered. They didn't expect me to be perfect on everything, but they, but the one thing that they expected is courage. And in a one-on-one meeting, they expected me to tell them what they needed to know, even if they didn't want to know it. And so when you, when you, when in executive session, they would often ask you questions like, do you have enough budget? Well, nobody's got enough budget, but you know, if I tell you, I don't have enough budget and they go back to the CEO and say, well, Larry said he didn't have enough budget. We need to get him above it. Now you've created a conflict. So again, what you need to do is you say, Hey, look at, I have budget to do a, B and C, but I don't have the budget to do D, E and F. If you as an audit committee think D, E and F are really important, then we need to talk about how I get some more resources, but you don't want, you don't want to dump a problem on the audit committee. That's not what it, you know, you don't just dump on them, but what you want to do is you want to get them to be co-owner of the problem. All right. I can do so much with my resources. I think I should be doing D, E, and F, but I don't have the expertise to do that. Help them become part of the solution. Don't dump the problem on them. But if they know what the issue is, going back to the, the two examples in cyber, one, they let the CAE go. The other one, they said, we should have been listening to the CAE. That's what you want to do as a new CAE. Have those conversations, build the trust, build the insight, show them that you can make a difference. And they'll, be, they'll back you up 99% of the way. I've never had a, a chairman of the audit committee that didn't back me up when I needed to be backed up. Yeah. Um, so this has been fantastic. But the, I feel like I've said this four or five times now where I go, my favorite part was this thing. Um, and so there's been <laughs> like four or five of those. But the insight between the relationship between the CAE and the, um, the audit, uh, the chair, uh, of the audit committee was very, very interesting. Um, I had not heard heard it quite like that before. So I definitely appreciate that. I know the new CAEs uh, will appreciate that. I know probably CAEs that have been doing it for five, 10 years might look at it and go, oh yeah, it's probably changed my approach and how I have that relationship with them. So um, really fantastic, Larry. Can I, give, can, I give, can I give you just one more quick example? Please. So the CEO of Raytheon, when he would pick up the Wall Street Journal and read a problem like Wells Fargo or Volkswagen, right. he would call me and say, Larry, we got a board meeting coming up in three weeks, four weeks, whatever. I need you to do a report. What happened at Volkswagen? What happened at Wells Fargo? You got plenty of contacts and they figure out what happened yeah. and then help the board understand, could it happen at Raytheon? Could it not happen at Raytheon? If it couldn't, why not? And if it could, what audits are you now going to do that you weren't thinking about doing before in the in reprioritization? He had enough confidence in, in the internal audit function that when he would read about a scandal, read about a, a, an issue, he would call me and ask me to brief the full board. What happened? How did it happen? Could it happen here? What are we going to do going forward? That's, again, building the right relationship, the right brand with the CEO where they, they can trust you to go and get the data that you need to know what happened at that company, not to the level of detail as if you work there, but enough to know, like at Wells Fargo, part of their problems were their compensation programs. So within Raytheon, Larry, have you looked at all of our compensation programs and are they incenting the right things or the wrong things? You know, they, they, he just always wanted to use the lessons learned from others. And he used internal audit to help with that lesson learned and the same with the board. So as a chief audit executive, 
use those. Don't wait for the CEO to call you. When you know there's something in a company that's been in the Wall Street Journal that gets a lot of press, get on top of it quickly. So if someone does call you and ask you, you immediately sound like you already know it. Don't say, I'll go find out the answers. Show them that you're connected into the industry, you're connected into the profession, and that your, your network will help the company achieve its goals and objectives. Very solid, actionable advice. You know, anytime we talk about advice or ask for what would you do in this situation, sometimes you don't really get the, that's how you actually do it. But to be able to say, look, when something's on the front page of the paper, uh, be prepared that you're going to probably get asked about it to some degree. Uh, yeah. Can that happen to us? How are you comfortable with, with that conclusion? So um, what, if nothing else, just scanning the uh, Wall Street Journal and seeing what's out there and then being able to be, be prepared to have the conversation like you, uh, like you mentioned, that, that exactly. really nice takeaway. Thank you very much uh, for coming on. Really appreciate your time. And again, feel free to share my contact information with anyone's got a question. Um, I'll try to get back to them as quickly as I can. I still have a lot of gas left in the tank. I still do some consulting work. I still work with um, the profession uh, on a regular basis. I speak, I just spoke last week in um, Malaysia uh, remotely. So I'm still pretty well connected and I want to help the profession continue to grow. So thank you for all that you do. You make a big difference as well. Thanks, Larry. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you please consider leaving a rating on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on right now? It really makes a difference in helping to convince hard to get guests to come on the show. I did it and it only took me 16 seconds to give myself a five-star rating. So it shouldn't take uh, too much longer than that. Thank you very much for listening.